on our time then, let us return to uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 20. And we're going to look at the verses, verses 9 to 18. <clears throat> Some weeks ago, on the Lord's Day evening, we looked at the earlier verses in this chapter, verses 1 to 9. And the Lord Jesus Christ was teaching in the temple some days before his crucifixion. And he was asked a question by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. By what authority doest thou these things? What was he doing? Well, he had cleansed the temple. He had caused an uproar in the temple. He was one who was zealous for the house of God. And he saw all kinds of merchandise and things that should not be happening in the temple. And to the holy Lord Jesus Christ he found offensive. And he took it upon himself to overturn the tables of the money changers. And to cast out the animals that were going to be used for sacrifice. And of course these people, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, who financially benefited from what was going on in the temple, were not happy. Their pockets had been affected. And they asked the question, by what authority doest thou these things? Who gave you the right to do these things? And the Lord Jesus Christ in answering them, asked a question first. And they would not answer the question. It's not that they could not, they would not. They didn't recognize the baptism of John. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? And they thought about it. And there was two possible answers. And none of these answers pleased them. Therefore, they would not give an answer. And because they would not give an answer, Christ did not answer their original question. And it taught us this very important lesson. That these people, the leaders, the scribes, the chief priests and the elders, possessed enough information and knowledge about the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't need to supply any fresh evidence. He had already provided an abundant supply of evidence that he was God's son, that he was the Messiah, and he was going to give them no more. And it's a warning to us, friends. <coughs> we have the record of the gospel in the gospels, and the word of God from the Old Testament to the New Testament testifies to this solemn fact that God has visited his people in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And through his Son, he has provided salvation for every single soul that will come to him. And we know this. We're not ignorant of it. We live we might argue, in greater spiritual light than ever did the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders. Oh, you might say, but they saw the Lord Jesus. They heard him speak. They heard him preach. 
They would have seen miracles. They would have seen lives changed. Nevertheless, friends, we today in the 21st century have had greater opportunities and we live in a day of greater spiritual light. We have the completed word of God. We have the canon of scripture. God is going to give us no more fresh revelation. Everything we need to believe, to live, to live happily, peacefully upon this world and go into eternity with a firm hope fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ has all been laid before us here. And we're going to get no more information. Now's the time to lay hold on Christ for yourselves and to know this peace that the gospel speaks of. But as I said, we want to look at what happened after Christ did not answer their, their question. And we find here in verse 9, Then began he to speak to the people. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders were there. But the Lord Jesus Christ used this opportunity to instruct the people. And no doubt these leaders would have heard, as we know, because from verse 19, which we didn't read, but verse 19 says, The chief priests and the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him, and they feared the people. Why? For they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke to the people about, uttered this parable. And the scribes who may be in some sense dead in trespasses and sins. Yet they were ones who realized that this parable was spoken against them. What is the parable about? Well, I do believe it's one of the most easiest parables that we have in the scriptures. And to impress this parable upon you, friends, let us remind ourselves that this is recorded not just in this gospel, but also in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel. It's one of only a very few of the parables that are recorded in three Gospels. And this parable here is relatively simple. It's not difficult. We don't need to go to a theological college to be able to understand and to grasp this parable. What's it all about then? Well, one or two pointers that will help us to grasp this parable. And by the way, my title <coughs> for the sermon is Stumbling at Christ. Stumbling at Christ. What's the parable about? Well, the vineyard is Israel. It's Israel. And it's reminding us again that Israel was a chosen nation. And they had received blessings that other nations knew nothing about. God had highly favoured them. And he had treated them, if you like, as his special vineyard. He took care of them. He put them in the promised land. He gave them blessing upon blessing. He gave them divine worship. He gave them the law. 
He gave them the covenants. He gave them the prophets. All of these blessings he lavished upon the people while the other nations that lived round about were steeped in darkness. It was truly a wonderful act by the Lord our God. And the vineyard is no doubt Israel, the nation Israel itself. And the husbandmen are the people of Israel. And God has given the vineyard to his people. And he's expecting fruit. What's he expecting? He's expecting lives that have been changed and transformed by the word of God. That's what he's expecting. He's expecting fruitful lives. He's expecting people to live according to the word of God. After all, they had received it. Other nations didn't. You couldn't expect other nations to live as God would have them to live because they did not have that revelation, that special revelation that God gave alone to Israel. And therefore, because they had been highly favored, he was looking for lives that have been transformed, that would bear spiritual fruit. As a, an owner of a vineyard would look for the vineyard to bring forth fruit, whereby he could make wine and make a profit from it. So God was looking for spiritual fruit from his people. And the people, particularly here, the leaders were the husbandmen. They were ones who were to cultivate this vineyard. And through their teaching and preaching and through their diligence, they were to see the people transformed. But that was not the case. The servants that have been sent to the people, they were the Old Testament prophets. And it's a fair generalization to say that when a prophet came on to the scene, whatever his message, it always began with repent. Why? Because they were a sinful people. That's why. And they were not living according to the word of God. And they were not living according to the light that they had. And therefore every prophet, from the major to the minor, it was basically the same message. They had to repent. They had to reform. They had to change their ways. This was the essence of their message. Finally, we are told here, that after his servants have been sent and they were mistreated, what happens? The owner of the vineyard, he sends his son. What does verse 14 say? But when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. They had mistreated the servants. And now the owner had sent his son. And they said to themselves, if we kill him, we'll have the inheritance. We'll have the vineyard. It'll be ours. We can do as we please. This is no doubt a reference to Christ. And here when Christ was teaching this parable, he was fully aware of what these people were seeking to do to him. He knew Calvary was just before him. He knew he was going to suffer and die at the hands of the leaders of Israel. He knew all this. 
he sent his beloved son. What happened? Well, we're told this is the heir. Come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. They did it. What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He will take the vineyard away from them and he will give it to others. And this is what happened. He took, if you like, the gospel from the Jewish nation. And where did the gospel go? It went to the Gentiles. And they received it. And they embraced it. This is what happened here. The vineyard was given to others. And this depicts the gospel in all its fullness and all its purity went forth to the Gentile nations. And they accepted it. By and large, they did accept it. And when the Jews rejected it, why, they received it in Thessalonica, in Athens, in Corinth, in the most unlikeliest of places. There, God's gospel bore fruit and took hold amongst the Gentile nations. And then really what do we find here? Christ then refers to part of Psalm 118. And really this parable is, if you like, is a, is a commentary on some of the verses in Psalm 118. And verses 17 and 18 highlight this. Here is now Christ applying the teaching of the parable. And he beheld them and said, What is this that is written? Here we have this in the psalm. What does this mean? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. What was the stone? The stone was the Lord Jesus Christ. The builders were the leaders and they rejected Christ. What did they say? Crucify him, crucify him. That's what they said. And they were fulfilling what was written in Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. Well, they might have rejected him, but nevertheless God was going to build his church and the Lord Jesus Christ was going to be the great cornerstone. And upon that cornerstone, he was going to build his great gospel church. And here, friends, in verse 18, we have something that's most solemn that we shall look at. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone, whosoever shall fall upon Christ, whosoever shall stumble upon Christ shall be broken. But then it goes on. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Well, <clears throat> with the remainder of our time, there are one or two headings that I wish to highlight with you. First of all, and we're really going to focus upon these two verses, 17 to 18, Obviously with the parable in the background. But the first thing we want to highlight here is we have a 
rejected stone. A rejected stone. From verse 17. What is this then that is written? The stone which the builders rejected. But before we get to this, before we seek to open up this, we are meant to see in this parable something about our God. We are surely meant to see something about our God and about ourselves. What is it we see about human nature? Do we not see the complete depravity of human nature in this parable? God had lavished blessings upon Israel. Israel did not deserve these blessings. Israel, like any other nation, was steeped in sin. There was nothing special. There was nothing great in Israel. But God in his sovereign mercy had chosen them. And he had lavished upon them blessings. And he had, throughout the centuries... He had cared for them. He had provided for them. He had brought them out of Egypt. And he had done wonderful things by taking them into the promised land. He had established them. And we know that in the time of David and Solomon, truly it was a wonderful kingdom. And God had united them and blessed them. They were living in prosperity. They were living in peace. They had everything that they could possibly want. And yet... At the end, when the Messiah came, when the one that they prayed for, when he finally came, the whole of them, the leaders and the people joined together. We will not have this man to reign over us. Crucify him, crucify him. Why? Because he was not going to give them the kingdom that they desired. It wasn't going to be an earthly kingdom. It was going to be a spiritual kingdom. And the Lord Jesus Christ was not going to deliver them from the dominion of Rome. No. He was going to deliver them from a far greater dominion. It was going to be delivered from the dominion of Satan and of sin and its consequences. That's the kingdom that he came to establish. And here, friends, we see the utter depravity of the human nature. They rejected. They rejected the pearl of great price. They rejected the one who came from heaven and the one who would take them to heaven. They rejected Christ. Does this not tell us, friends, something about our nature, by nature? Does it not reveal unto us, if it were not for the grace of God, we would just be like the Jews here, just like the leaders? We would reject Christ? This truly is a terrible portrait of human nature. You know, we hear it very often. People speak of individuals. Maybe they've died suddenly. Maybe they were very young. Or maybe they had lived in old age. And maybe their life wasn't perfect. But you know, you hear the comment. He was good at heart. 
She had a good heart. Yes, she may have had faults and failings, but she was a good individual. Friends, that is not the case. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. If the Lord Jesus Christ was among us today in our society, as he was in the first century, if it were not from the great, for the grace of God, every one of us would just be like these leaders and these people. We will not have him. We would not have him. We would crucify him. Why? Because by nature we are God-haters. These are not pleasant things, but we need to meditate upon it. Here is a classic example. Are they any different from us by nature? No, of course not. And this parable then highlights the, the nature that you have by nature. And therefore, before you're ever going to come to the Lord Jesus, before you're ever going to embrace him, before you're ever going to value him, before you're ever going to seek him, before you're ever going to call out upon him, something wonderful must happen to you. You must be changed. Oh, friends, we must be changed if we're ever going to be fit for glory. You know, some people pride themselves and Hope they have a hope for heaven. Friends, you don't want to go to heaven unless you're changed. You don't want to go to heaven unless you've got a heavenly nature. Heaven's a holy place. It's a holy God who's there. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the holy angels, and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were to get to heaven as you are, it would be a hell to you. Do you not realize you must be changed? And the only way that you can be changed is when the Lord himself comes in his sovereign power and he changes you. He gives you new life. Oh, we're talking about that experience that happened to Nicodemus, we believe, when he came and he spoke to Jesus. Jesus said to him, ye must be born again. Why must you be born again? Because by nature you're dead in trespasses and sins. You're just like these people there. And you don't love the Lord Jesus. You don't look upon him. You want to run away from him. You don't want him by nature. That's why he was rejected. Friends, it is the duty and the privilege of the gospel minister to lay these things before you. And, oh yes, and to impress upon you that you must come to him. But you will not come unless you're drawn. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And whosoever cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Because by nature, because of sin, and because of our enmity against God, against Christ, against his cause, 
we will not come to him. Do we see our plight? Do we see our predicament? We must come, but we won't come. What must we do? We must cast ourselves upon the mercy of God. We must cry out to God, O oh Lord, change me. O oh Lord, give me new life. This is what we must do. That we would not reject him. That rejected stone. Secondly, <clears throat> from these verses, surely we have a triumphant stone. A triumphant stone. Look at the second part of verse 17. The same is become the head of the corner. The Lord Jesus Christ was rejected by his own people. There's a verse in John chapter 1. John 11, I think it is. John 1, 11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. If he had gone to the Gentiles, if he had gone to the Corinthians, if he had gone to the Thessalonians, and they had rejected him, it would hardly be surprising. But he went first to his own, and they rejected him. What? What happened then? Did he throw in the towel? Did he think, well, it's all over? Oh, I'm speaking after the manner of men, of course. No, he did not. He did not. What happens? You know the gospel went forth. Yes, he suffered, he died. He rose again, he appeared to his disciples, he gave them that great commission to go forth, and they were first of all to preach the gospel in Jerusalem, something that you and I would never do. We would have said, oh Jerusalem's had its day. Why? It was in Jerusalem that they crucified Christ. And are we going to start a mission there? Where a few days ago they had crucified him? Nevertheless, it was to start there and it was to go out to Judea, to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it did. It did. The apostles and the disciples took the gospel and it spread. This is what we find here. The same has become the head of the corner. Christ rejected by his people, yet nevertheless, his kingdom formed, his kingdom flourished. And even today, friends, it's still flourishing. It may not be flourishing as we would like it in our day and generation, here in our locality, in our nation. But nevertheless, we have a panoramic view of these things. And we know that even if Christianity is declining in the Western world, yet it is making advances in other places. A triumphant stone. 
Christ is indeed building his church. He may well even be building his church here in our midst this evening. You may be surrounded with ones who once rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Or you may be one who knows nothing really about the gospel. The gospel might well be new to you. And maybe God is opening your heart to the gospel. And maybe you're going to be one who will truly embrace him as he has freely offered to you in the gospel this evening. But come what may, it doesn't really matter to some extent because Christ will be victorious. And this is surely what does encourage the Christian. It certainly encourages the gospel minister as he goes forth and as he seeks to preach the gospel. Sometimes he might well feel that he's getting nowhere. And that may well be the truth. But then he looks up. And then he remembers the promises. I will build my church. That's what Jesus said. I will build it. Oh, the preacher will not build it. The church will not build it. Jesus will build his church. He will be triumphant. And that triumph will be seen one day. And you will see it one day. You will see it. Every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. His enemies shall be made his footstool. He shall be absolutely triumphant. All false religions, all false philosophies will fail. They will falter. They will be brought down. The kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. The Lord Jesus Christ will be triumphant. And is triumphant. Even today. In amongst all the chaos and all the confusion of this world. Is it not marvelous for the Christian that this is a fact? That God is ruling. Oh, we love to see it. And overruling. That's the God of the Bible. Too many people think that God is somehow just a wee bit more powerful than we are. Oh, what foolishness. Oh, what utter foolishness. God is a great God. And he's even using the devil who is his servant. Now the devil, because of his nature, he seeks to fight and rebel against God as he must do because of his nature. God is using him, even in all his wickedness, to further the cause of Christ. And so it is with all our, our rulers. Where is the power today? Is it in Downing Street? Is it in Washington? Is it in Beijing? Is it in Moscow? No, friends, the power today is in heaven where it's always been. And don't despair. Jesus Christ is triumphant. 
We see it by faith. We acknowledge. One day, you'll see it with 2020 vision, with your own eyes. Christ on the throne, triumphant. Hasten that day, we say. <clears throat> Briefly, thirdly, we have the perilous stone. Verse 18. He goes on and concludes again, <clears throat> based on Psalm 118. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Well, I put it to you first of all, before we seek to divide this verse up, Surely it displays to us here and teaches us from the very words of the Lord Jesus himself. It shows us the severity of God. This parable does speak to us and does teach us of the mercy and of the long-sufferingness and of the patience of God. But God's patience is not infinite. It's wonderful. It's glorious. It is long-suffering, but it will come to an end. The day of grace will come to an end. And this shows us the severity of God. This is something that many people will gloss over. But we dare not. Because that God who is full of love Yes, he has an everlasting love towards his people. If you are a Christian today, friend, you are loved with an everlasting love. You cannot be loved anymore. In heaven, in glory, you will not be loved any more than you are been loved today. Oh, you will know it and you will experience it. That's true. But if you're a Christian, you have been loved even before you were ever born. That's true. And we delight in it. But the Bible does not speak only of the love of God. Our God is also a consuming fire. The Bible talks about our God being a man of war. And although judgment is regarded in the Bible as a strange work, in the sense that this is not something he likes to do, if we can use that expression of God. But nevertheless, we are to derive from this verse here that God is a severe God. He is one who will treat those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ with absolute holy severity. And it's not surprising, friends, when you consider the great cost of the Son of God coming down from heaven and undertaking a salvation. All 
that he did. And for mortal men and women to reject what he has done is a terrible affront to God. And God does not take these things lightly. And he will severely deal with those who reject Christ. That's certainly what it teaches us here. And I would be failing in my duty if I did not impress this upon you. Friends, I'm happy to tell you. I'm happy to tell every one of you. I don't care your background. I don't care your current position. I don't care about your current state. But I'll tell you the truth as it is in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you will but come to Christ today. If you will lay hold of him today. Then heaven will be your portion. You will be found in heaven if you truly come to the Lord Jesus Christ. It does not matter your background. It does not matter what sins you have committed. There is forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we lay that clearly before you. Every one of you. Singly. Man, woman, boy or girl. It matters not. But on the other hand. And there's always another hand. If you will not. Then hell itself awaits you. That terrible place. That place that the Bible tries to describe. And I use that word guardedly. Who can possibly describe it? Can human words describe it? That place of torment that will never change. That place where men, women, boys and girls shall be forever and forever without remission, without any break whatsoever. Can you imagine it? Can you write about it? Can you describe it? Can we use human words that will fully describe it? We cannot. We're at a loss. Oh, we do know the Bible describes it as the bottomless pit, as flames and such like. And these are the words of the Lord Jesus himself. But we cannot fully describe the misery of those who will be there. Oh, would it not be alright if we were there for a thousand years? Would it not be okay? Could we not somehow get round it if we were there for 10,000 years? Oh, but for eternity? Who could stand it? That's what we're talking about here. This verse may well be divided into two. It says... Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken. And some commentators, which I agree with, will tell you that this first part of this verse refers to those who stumble at Christ when he was first proclaimed at the very beginning of the gospel era, the time of the scribes and the Pharisees, and the elders and the chief priests that we find here in this chapter. They were at the very beginning of the gospel era. 
What does it say? Whosoever shall fall upon the stone, that stone shall be broken. If they stumble all over Christ, at that time they shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Commentators believe that this is a reference to the time when the Lord Jesus Christ will come back the second time. At the end of the gospel dispensation. And what is clearly telling us here is those at the beginning of the gospel invitation, they, if they stumble upon Christ, shall be broken. But those at the end of the gospel dispensation, if they stumble upon Christ, they shall be ground to powder or to dust. Now I don't know about you, but this tells me that those at the beginning of the gospel dispensation who reject Christ will be punished. A terrible punishment. But those at the end, when Christ returns, they will receive a greater punishment. Why? Well, because, friends, they have enjoyed greater light. We're in that day. As I said in the beginning, we know more from an intellectual point of view of the gospel than ever the chief priests and the scribes and the elders ever knew. It's so much clearer to us. We have the crucifixion. We have the resurrection. We have the coming of the Holy Spirit. We have 2,000 years of church history. We have 2,000 years of Christ triumphing, turning the world upside down with the gospel. And therefore for us today to reject Christ, to stumble at him with all this light flooding our world is truly a terrible, terrible sin in the sight of God. Therefore he is a perilous stone to stumble at. What must we do? Friends, we must come to him. Because our rejection, our stumbling at Christ is the most damning sin that we could ever commit. It's a sin of unbelief. And if we continue, there's no remedy. There's no hope. But today, now, here is the day of grace, the day of salvation, the day when 
The word of God tells us, harden not your hearts. Come, believe upon the Lord Jesus. Receive him. Do not stumble at him, but prostrate yourself before him and come. Amen. And may the Lord bless his word to us. Let us pray together.